building a company from nothing is freaking hard. Us entrepreneurs are expected to deal with unimaginable challenges and somehow keep a cool head through it all. This is The Art of Entrepreneurship, and I'm your host, Jackie Hermes. I grew my company, Excelity, from zero to seven figures with no partners and no funding. The Art of Entrepreneurship is a show where we cut through the BS and dig into what it actually takes to start and grow a company. If you give me your time, I promise it won't be wasted. Now let's get to work. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Entrepreneurship. Today we are discussing sales, but in a different way than we have covered the topic on this podcast before. I have spoken often about why you should know how to sell and why selling is a critical skill for every leader and every business person in general. But today we're talking more about the structure behind what makes a good salesperson. The idea that salespeople just need to learn a process and hard close, it's a thing of the past now. And salespeople today are expected to influence and go on the buying journey right alongside their buyers and create an emotional connection with them and support their buying journey with facts and results when that time comes. And that's something that we talk about today. My guest today, wrote a book called The Sales MBA that just came out last month, actually, so you should definitely check it out. His name is Douglas Cole, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about what goes into a successful salesperson and why. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Me too. Uh, it's, It's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, As I was looking into you and preparing for this podcast, I read somewhere that you, you said that selling is a core competency and it's even more so in the digital world today. I definitely believe in that. And in I've referenced this in many episodes of this podcast about how all leaders need to know how to sell and selling scares the crap out of people, but they really need to get better at it because it improves so many aspects of like leadership and growing a company. Talk to me a little bit about why you think that selling is a core competency for leaders. Well, I think it's increasingly so because I think we need to almost reframe the concept a little bit. It's not so much selling, it's influencing. And I think that influencing has become a core competency. Influencing is sort of the broader the broader rubric, I guess, and sales falls within that. But, but the reason why influence slash selling has become so much more pervasive is that the, the nature of our knowledge economy, as it becomes more and more reliant on information nodes, both outside the company and with inside the company, and you get these, these complex layers of nodes that are being built in our knowledge economy. It means that for you as a knowledge worker to be successful, you have to influence a, a more complex um, stakeholder landscape, whether you're doing that within, within your own firm or whether you're doing that with a client organization as a as a seller, it's just that the the increasing social complexity of our environment requires us to be better and better as influencers, and so I think that's that's the reason why it's important to go back to something that Dan Pink said many years ago, about ten years ago. Daniel Pink wrote that best selling book, "To Sell Is Human," and he was mm. he was starting to make that point, but that point is just so much more salient now because. It, I think at the time he wrote that, he, he estimated that something like 40% of any knowledge worker's time was allocated to selling. It's almost certainly double that now when, when, you, when, you, when you actually think about what most people are expected to do in, in, in the modern economy. So that's the reason I, I think it's, it's, so, it's so primary now as a skill. I, 
I still reference that book as one of my recommendations when people are thinking about learning how to sell or even wondering why they need to learn how to influence or sell. It's mm -hmm. a really great read. Uh, you cover a topic in your book, The Sales MBA, which by the way, thank you for sending it to me. I've started reading it and I really like it so far. I've never heard the term decision architecture. Now it makes sense in theory, right? But I hadn't heard the term previously. And it's basically the idea that we can shape the choices from which people make decisions and that can determine how a decision is made. Talk to me about like, what is decision architecture in your words and how does that apply to influencing or selling? Well, the, the term decision architecture comes from the academic field of behavioral economics, which has fascinated me for quite some time. And I think we're, we're overdue for, I would say, a formal embrace of behavioral economics within the world of sales. It, it's not as if none of that has happened, uh, but I think at this point in time, I think most people are now becoming more and more familiar with the concept of behavioral economics, which is essentially the an understanding of, of, the, of how human beings make decisions in often a non-rational way. And, and, so the, 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 um, and so I think that becoming a decision architect is, is one of the core competences, competencies of a seller insofar as a seller is trying to work with the interpersonal dynamics of a client and trying to figure out what matters to this person. How can I, how can I spur action? Uh, how can I, how can I encourage this person to take the action that I think he or she needs to take for the benefit of their organization? That is essentially the role of a decision architect. You need to be able to work with the inf the variables the, such that you are maximizing the chance of getting noticed, of having a certain judgment being made, and of certain actions being taken. So um, th that's the, the general framework that I talk about that being a decision architect and how to very consciously shape those variables in client conversations. Yeah, that makes sense. And talking about it in theory is one thing. I would love for you to put that into practice for people that are listening. Like give an example of what that looks like in a selling situation or really anything. Like I read your smoothie example in the book mm -hmm. and I thought that was a good example. Well, one of the uh, one of the examples might be just a simple way of reframing the way you talk about things. So we already know from the political realm that millions and millions of dollars go into reframing the way political initiatives are described in one word or or more. Right? We talk about, for instance, that we, we've noticed if you if you study this stuff that there's a huge difference between, let's say, gaming and gambling. <laughs> Uh, they're both ex exactly the same thing, but the term gaming seems much more innocuous compared to gambling. And, and that's obviously something that the industry has a vested interest in. Well, in a sales context, you have many, many examples of how you frame something makes all the difference. So I can remember one sale, for example, where what we were hoping to do was to land a pilot initiative with the client. And there was a lot of resistance at first to the idea of a pilot. And so we simply reframed it. We, we reframed it as a champion initiative, not as a pilot. In other words, we framed it as an initiative where everyone already agreed it was going to be valuable to the client. We just wanted it to be a champion initiative where we would gather a critical mass of advocates in order to uh, in order to build more support for the, the larger program rollout. So it was just a subtle way of renaming and reframing the initiative. It was the same thing. But that term was much was something that they were much more receptive to, and it sort of led to, you know, I think, an acceleration of the conversation. So that would be one example of of how decision architect principles apply. Yeah, 
And I will tell you that the words that you use matter so much. And sometimes words turn into something that is unintended. This happens in marketing all the time. For example, the term MQL, there are so many people now that are saying marketing qualified leads suck, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's like the MQL word has been turned into something that the, the theory behind it and the intention of the MQL and even the result that it creates isn't inherently bad, right? And But the, what it's turned into and the perception of it is bad. We, my team and I talk about this all the time. Like, let's rebrand this. There's a series of meetings that we have internally that people have started to not like, like, oh, I don't like these meetings. They aren't well formatted. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to still do them. We're going to reformat them into something more productive for everyone. And then we're going to rename them so that we can, you know, like have a different feeling around that meeting, um, I think, I mean, you're speaking marketing language to me yeah. big time. Yeah. Names, names create norms, right? And, and you'll yeah. be very, very conscious of the norms you're creating with those names. Yeah. Yeah. And politicians do that so freaking well, honestly, to bring it back to that part of it. Not that we talk about politics on this podcast because we typically don't. However, yeah. I do kind of want to touch on your, it was a really short segment in your book, but I thought it was very interesting. And something that I think about a lot is facts don't matter. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so, it's true in business. It's true in our daily lives. It's really true in politics, right? Because it's however you use evidence to your advantage or however you position it, it doesn't necessarily have to be supported yeah. by by a fact and when we're making a decision it's often an emotional decision yeah. uh, even like when we're in the sales process for the marketing aid or for my marketing agency we might be talking about a few hundred thousand dollar contract and i think the main reason that they're buying is because they really like us and that we yeah. have the results to back it up but we have created an emotional connection and a compelling case for them to want to work with us, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the idea that facts don't matter and how you might use something like that to get better at selling or sell more. Yeah, well, there's one statistic I remember reading which really, really struck me. And that was based on thousands and thousands of, of prospecting emails that someone had analyzed. And we're talking, again, more than 100,000 emails. And what this person analyzed was the prevalence of the term ROI in, a, in those emails. And he, he looked to see whether that the, the placement of that term ROI and presumably some promise as to what the ROI benefit would be, he looked to see whether there was a correlation between the use of that term and the response rate to, of those emails. And what he discovered was that the response rate was actually negative, that the, the, the more prominent that that term was within a prospecting email, the less likely it was to get opened. And this really gets to the heart of why I'm saying that facts don't matter. It's actually not so much that facts don't matter in and of themselves. It's that facts only matter when they're introduced at the right time. The reason I think why that, those emails don't get opened is that the, the sender, the, the salesperson, is using that ROI promise because he or she feels that that must be attractive, that must be compelling to the reader, but it's not. You know, the facts alone are never compelling as the first salvo. You need to earn the right to 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 be able to reference those facts, and you earn the right emotionally. And so, you're as a seller, I think practically speaking, you need to know that you have 
established the emotional credibility with someone, so to speak, you know, before you have earned that right to start talking about facts and analysis and so forth. Too many people just lead with the facts and analysis when it's premature. They, they, they have yet to establish that, that there's, a, there's a tangible want that they've elicited or that they've tapped into on the client side. It's only when you're doing that, that people are actually ready to, to get those facts and logical pieces of information. Mm -hmm. I have a few comments on that because was that a gong report? I'm pretty sure I've read that. Yeah, I think it was um, actually may have been sales loft. I think it was Jeremy, okay. Jeremy Donovan from sales loft. Did, did okay. that yeah, but it, it's, it's, it may have been cross-reference or, or, you know, a, co a study with gong. Yeah. Cause they do yeah. a lot of that for that type of research. I read it and I was like, of course, when you're making a decision and it's based in fact, and you know, like, you're looking at ROI and you're looking at the results and the return. Well, why wouldn't you lead with that? Who doesn't want yeah. ROI from, you know, right. so it was fascinating to read that. And I will also add that I work very closely with our BDR at Excelity and mm -hmm. her best performing email is very emotion based. It talks about, we are typically selling to B2B software companies who only have maybe one or two people in marketing. And I know exactly what that feels like because that's the situation that I was in when I started this agency, right? Mm -hmm. And I know just the, the feeling of being so under-resourced and feeling like you can't get things done and your to-do list is growing and growing and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm never going to be able to do all of this. And it's almost like, hopeless and impossible. And when we talk about that feeling and we can identify how large their marketing team is and like emotionally relate to them about how they're feeling about running marketing as a one or two person team, mm -hmm. that's the first email. And that is the one that we book the most meetings off of, which is fascinating. It completely supports exactly what you're saying, that it's about making that emotional case. And then they want to hear about the results later yeah. or the ROI later. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we use facts and arguments uh, to rationalize what we've already pre-committed to from an emotional point of view. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. There's one more thing in your book that I wanted to cover because you talk about the idea of comparison. And I think comparing is a really natural thing that most people want to do. Like, for example, I started my career as a recruiter. And no matter the caliber of the person that I put in front of a hiring manager, they always wanted something to compare to, right? Mm -hmm. um, even if, you know, we were like hiring an executive, we could be hiring a freaking CEO and they'd be like, well, what do I have to compare it to, right? And right. in recruiting, that is totally a no-no because you're just supposed to evaluate the candidate based on their own merit. That said, I think that you can use comparison to propel the sales process forward when used correctly. Talk mm -hmm. to me a little bit about like comparison. Do you think it's good or bad and how might you use it in the sales process? Yeah, I think comparison is, again, one of these fundamental skills. And it, it because the reality is that we don't understand anything in isolation. I mean, even if I said to you something like, you should really send your kids to this great school. Here are all these facts that you should know about this great school. That means you should you should pay the tuition, send them there. You're not going to be able to make a decision with that because you need to know, well, what compared to what? Compared to what alternative before I decide whether that's, in fact, a great yeah. school. We, we find it extraordinarily difficult to analyze things just in isolation. And so in a sales context, it's not just that you have to have, I think, a point of comparison at all times. You should always be asking yourself, 
compared to what compared to what how can i how can i clarify that which i think is in the client's interest by contrasting it with something else and the important thing to understand about contrast it, it has to be a significant contrast if you present a client with uh, let's say two or three options and there are only shades of difference between each of those options it's much less effective than if you if you show a contrast between let's say option a and option b and it's a it's a wide contrast there there's a there's a real sense in which one option lacks notably lacks something compared to the other one and so that's the that's the golden standard for for comparison in sales is when you when you really want to highlight the benefit of something you do so by widening the contrast between the option that you are uh, that you are um, comparing it to. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think, yeah, it's not just comparison. It's also the degree of contrast that you can show with that other comparison. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think it's, there's so many nuances that you write about in the book that I think are very important for salespeople to learn. And I think that most of them are one, not trained on it. And two, don't know a lot of these theories, you know, and if it doesn't come naturally to you, it's a lot freaking harder to be good at sales. Okay. We are running out of time. I try to keep these short and sweet. And I know we covered a lot today. If there was for anyone listening, like one most important takeaway, if there's one action that they should take or one thing they should do after listening to this, what is it? I think the most important thing is, is to recognize that sales is about three things. It's about skill set, tool set, and mindset. And what I'm emphasizing in this book is the mindset dimension, how you see yourself as a strategist, as a change agent, as a decision architect. And that, from what I've seen, is the lead domino for top performers. The people who master this craft, they lead with mindset. They think of themselves fundamentally differently. And as a result, their tool set and their their skill set just continually improves based on that mindset foundation. So that's mm-hmm. that's my general recommendation. That's what I've been trying to write about in this book. Isn't that so true for like every function in life? Your mindset mm-hmm. comes first. And it's when it comes to being a leader or even being a good partner, it's your mindset and how you show up and the work that you do on yourself sets the precedent for everything else. And that is one of the premises of this podcast. So perfect tie-in. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And for everyone listening, if you got value out of this episode today, and I know you did, I would love for you to share this with just one person, one person that's looking to improve their sales game or even start learning how to sell. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you.